coming up next in The Ziggler Show. He thinks to himself, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got I just lost terribly in this first race. Who's going to give me money again uh, to run again? And he thinks about leaving politics until someone on his staff suggests that he go to the church and I, I'd see what pastors are doing to engage their flocks. And then a couple of years later, he comes back on the trail. All of a sudden, he's telling stories. He's using repetition. He's modulating his tone. He's using the pregnant pause for effect. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. And what I love about that story is it illustrates that Barack Obama didn't venture off into the wilderness to find his talent. He didn't practice for 10,000 hours. He figured out what was working in a different field and incorporated it into his approach. And that's a tool that we can all use, whether you're developing a website. Don't just look at the, at the, at the other websites of the people who are your competitors. Look to see what they're doing in different industries. Figure out what's unique about those experiences and think about ways of combining influences. Combining influence turns out to be a far better path to creativity than aiming to be completely original. And it's because being completely original, as the research sh- shows us, actually backfires. People don't like original ideas. It scares them. Welcome to The Ziggler Show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. On The Ziggler Show, my focus is getting to the root of personal and business development by digging into what actually helps us change and transform and achieve the progress we feel called to and the fulfillment we truly desire. Here I bring today's most influential people onto the show and take captive the core issues of human performance and have conversations about what really matters to our individual lives. In this episode, the two primary ingredients we think of in regards to success are usually talent and lots of hard work, right? Greatness comes from having above average talent and putting in your 10,000 hours. Yet if we audit everyone who has achieved a relative success, we find many, maybe even most, who don't have either of these. Uh, So what did they do? Well, they just figured out what works and they modeled it. So Ron Friedman, he's an award-winning psychologist and from his research in neuroscience, human psychology, physiology, and behavioral economics, he wrote a book on what he found in regards to this issue. The book's called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. So in this show, I dig in and just question Ron on how we can all use this reality to better embrace and accelerate our opportunities and success. And for those who get Ron's book, if you'll go to decodinggreatnessbook.com and submit your receipt, Ron will give you access to the Reverse Engineering Success Masterclass course. You can join like-minded people in my Driven to Live private community to discuss how to decode your own greatness. Just find us over at kevinmiller.co. You can go from listening to this show to actually engaging with it. Well, next up, Ron Friedman. Ron, looking at all you do, all you're involved with, I did look at the book and wonder, and if I missed it, I apologize, but wonder, was there a certain impetus for you to do this book? Meaning, was it just something, I mean, I've had so many things where I just, oh my gosh, just kind of an epiphany and I become aware of something. I think that's really solid stuff. Or it's on a personal side, and this is this is something that's a little acute in my life or with some people I'm involved with. Where did it fall for you? You know, I've always been fascinated with how people achieve top performance. It's why I got into psychology. It's what led me to write my first book, The Best Place to Work. Uh, and so my background is I got my degree in psychology, and then I went off into the corporate world. And it's because as a 
what I discovered is as, as a professor, you're just basically teaching the same thing over and over again. The thing that got me into education is I wanted to learn new things all the time. And you're not just not doing that as a professor. So I decided I'm going to go off into the corporate world and I became a pollster. So my job was to measure public opinion, figure out what is it that people believe, and then apply psychological principles to advise organizations on how they can shift public opinion. And when I discovered when I was doing that job, when I was working in the corporate world, is just the massive divide between what science tells us leads people to be productive and successful and creative at work and how most organizations function. So um, that was an eye opener for me, led me to write my first book, The Best Place to Work. And in it, I took over a thousand academic studies and translated them into plain English. So regardless if you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you have access to all the best information and how to elevate your performance and create a great workplace. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing is that even within the best organizations, there are a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. And so I was curious, what are the top performers doing differently? And that's what led me to do the research for this book, Decoding Greatness. And what I discovered is that they're not just following the typical path to success. They're doing something that most people have never heard of, and that's reverse engineering. I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Are you then from a 10,000 foot view say, well, you are saying, but I'm wondering why, because it seems so antithetical to say, okay, science is proving out people behave or, or do X, Y, Z. And mm-hmm. over here where the rubber beats the road, which is the marketplace, because it comes in the dollars we make and the fulfillment that we find and the impact that we have out there. And we've got these best business practices and you're saying they don't line up. And when I read books like yours, yeah, it is astounding. And you wonder where's the... How, how are we missing that? Are we just not listening to enough guys like you? <laughs> well, I think it's a couple of issues. And I think primary among them is the fact that if you are a business executive or an entrepreneur, you are busy. You do not have time to crack open the latest academic journal article. Uh, and even if you did have the time, you would have a hard time making sense of it because True. it's written for other academics. It's not written with actionable takeaways. And so we need interpreters. We need people who can in, uh, take and still down and take the, take academic journal articles, distill them down, translate them to plain English. Uh, and beyond that, I think there's a misconception about what it is that really motivates people. Uh, Dan Pink famously wrote in his book Drive uh, on uh, the importance of autonomy over money, but it's beyond that. It's when it's realizing the fact that when employees are in a good mood, that affects the way they communicate with one another. It affects their ability to collaborate. And there's something like uh, something uh, called we call emotional contagion, which is which goes to show that even if uh, you're in a good mood and you work for me, my customers are likely to be in a good mood as a function of your being in a good mood. And it's because we tend to mimic one another in ways that we don't consciously realize. And so What I argue in The Best Place to Work is there is a business case for creating a great workplace. And it's not because you want to make the world a better place or you want to have people more satisfied every night. Those things are nice, but it affects your bottom line. It affects profits. Well, it's interesting talking about translators. And I think we just had uh, or actually we just re-ran a show that we had Seth Godin on. Mm -hmm. I look at him that way as a business translator to here's what we tend to do and thinking yet this is what's really happening. And yeah, as you say that I am brought back to, I mean, it's, it's unreal how we know how many of us have not heard that people, employees tend to want appreciation. They want to be honored and appreciated. And yet we, as a business world, 
tend to look at money, you know, and we're going to give them that incentive. And we're, we miss that over and over and over, but yeah, you're right. You are right. That's really interesting uh, that you pulled out. It just say as a, as the average entrepreneur, you're just too busy. We need to hire Seth Godin's and Ron Friedman's to tell us what to actually <laughs> do. Uh, you know, so you're, I just had my uh, good friend, business partner, co-host of my true life podcast, Dr. Andy James. He says, okay, so you got a show coming up. You know, what's, what's it about? Really hard to totally distill yours down, but I did do, you know, what you just talked about that we tend to look at talent and we tend to look at time hundred percent. So here you go, Ron, I'm going to throw this at you and, and, and play with this in this arena for a second, because talent, you know, if I look at, so I was a pro cyclist. So when you talked about that, I thought, yeah, we look at our innate strength. So as an athlete, man, what I was best at was sports, ball sports. Mm-hmm. I was an incredible middle linebacker in football, but I, I just didn't like the team atmosphere to be honest. And so I went into cycling. I don't know that it was my best skill set necessarily, but you can go in there and, you know, put the time in. And so when you look at talent, now I was thinking about pro sports and looking at, let's say the NFL, right? So everybody in there, do we think that they're all talented because you've got one guy making the minimum salary, which I looked up 610 grand, got a lot of people. Most people would say, dude, you're in the NFL. You're making 610 grand. You are, you're a success. Are but where's the talent and compared to, you know, Patrick Mahomes, who's making 45 million a year. Is it fair to say in the economy of what you wrote this, that that may be a difference of, of some talent, but it was, well, we'll go to time or engineering, uh, breaking this down. Like we're going to talk about was it, is it that the difference there, but man, you can be a success to a great degree talent's just going to be a little differentiation. Yeah. So let me, let me take a step back and and explain the big idea for the book. So the big idea for decoding greatness Mm -hmm. is what are the big question that I'm trying to answer is what is it that leads people to be successful and top performers in their field? And so what I argue is that there are two main stories that we have been told throughout our lives. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. And this is the idea that we're all born with certain innate strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is just to identify what those innate strengths are and what field allows those strengths to shine. So in your case, maybe it was cycling, maybe it was sports. It had something to do with athletics. Your job really is not to do anything more than to experiment with different fields and identify the right fields for you. That's one big story, talent. The other big story is practice. The idea that if you just practice long enough that you have the right practice regimen and then you have enough discipline to carry through with it for years and years and years, 10,000 hours, some would say, then eventually you will succeed. Those are the two big big stories, talent versus practice. So what I wrote about in uh, Decoding Greatness is that there is a third path, and it is one that is remarkably common, especially outside of sports. It is a path through which entrepreneurs, inventors, uh, artists have succeeded through for generations, and yet nobody talks about it. That path is reverse engineering. And what reverse engineering means is finding exceptional examples in your field and then working backward to figure out how they succeeded. It is a path through which you can uncover someone else's secrets, someone else's techniques, and then apply those same techniques to a different medium or to a different execution. So in your case, before you started your podcast, I would imagine you did a little bit of research and you identified some podcasts that maybe resonated a little bit more acutely with you. 
most people would just end there and aim to just create their own podcast. But by using reverse engineering, what you could do is get a lot more tactical and identify precisely what it is that makes those specific podcasts unique and effective. And then start to play with applying those same techniques or maybe combining techniques from different kinds of podcasts to create something that is entirely new. That is the path through which people, writers learn to write. So I write in Decoding Greatness, Malcolm Gladwell himself, the 10,000 hours guy, Malcolm Gladwell and Stephen King both learned writing by, in part through reverse engineering. Artists like Claude Monet and Pablo Picasso, they reverse engineered other painters. Even Judd Apatow, who's one of the most successful comedian, com comedic writers of all time and director and, and producer, he learned comedy by reverse engineering other comedians. And so, the, you know, in Silicon Valley, the idea of reverse engineering is widespread. It's how we got personal computer and, and, and the iPad and um, iPhones and uh, laptop computers. But what people didn't realize, I think uh, most people don't, don't realize to today is, is that reverse engineering turns out to be far more widespread and impactful than anyone has ever assumed. And that there, right there, that's what I thought about as I'm reading your book and I'm thinking about entrepreneurs, which is the world that I've grown up in, that I, that I am in, that I love. And I thought, how many successful business people do I look out there? And if you ask me their story, I'd say, oh man, they're just stupid talented. Or, well, they just doggedly went after it for so long and put in their 10,000 plus hours that they made it happen. Honestly, when I think about those people who fell on those sides, I think of more failures than the successful businesses where, man, they just saw an opportunity and they went and did something, maybe not even better, but just a little different, which at the beginning of your book, you talked about Chipotle and Starbucks, mm -hmm. both of which, what did they invent? Not nothing. What was the talent or the nothing? They just took, like you said that with Chipotle, they just took something that was working in one area in essence and just brought it to a different area. Fair enough. So this is one of the fascinating things when you do the research on what makes entrepreneurs succeed, what you find is that they're not necessarily harder working or even more creative. What they're very, very good at is identifying patterns that succeed oh, in one market and find a different market to apply those patterns. So they're very good at recognizing commonalities that may that, that enable them to get a little bit ahead of the curve and make decisions faster than other people. And it's by recognizing those patterns. So what I discuss in the book is that if you look at Starbucks and Chipotle, they're both founded on the same underlying pattern. And that pattern is find an idea that's working somewhere else and import it into your hometown. So in the case of Starbucks, Howard Schultz works for Starbucks, who was at the time a bean uh uh, a bean connoisseur. They sell they yeah. sell beans to, to coffee connoisseurs. They do not sell uh, coffee by the cup. He goes off to Italy. He sees all these espresso bars. He's like, huh, I wonder if this will work in Seattle. In the case of Chipotle, Steve Ells is working in San Francisco, sees burrito bars everywhere and takes it and opens it up in Denver. And so when you understand the underlying pattern, all of a sudden that fuels you to start creating all these great ideas yourself. So I say in Decoding Greatness that we look at entrepreneurs, we think of them as a tornado of ideas, but really it's not about a having a million ideas, it's having the right formulas that can then be applied to all kinds of different areas in life. So it's interesting, the Chipotle one stood out to me because two days ago, a uh, former co-CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, 
So we just gotten to know each other. I had him on a show and turns out we were in the same area. He flies out and we spent a day together and we uh, went by, we're up in, uh, up in a little town in Colorado. And I pointed out, you know, it's a cool hotel. He says, yeah, I just bought that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> and he, says, he just bought that, this funky old hotel. It's a funny story, but to what you're saying, what is he doing? He's doing some things that he has seen work well in some other areas and say, here's an underserved. Literally, they're coming along. He took me into where they're building this restaurant out. And one of their primary focuses is breakfast. Why? Because there's kind of a local, you know, it's a, it's a place, a resort area. A lot of people come and people come in who say there's not enough options for breakfast. It's kind of a running joke. So they know the one good breakfast place. So what's he going to do? Just come in and provide really good breakfast and serve an under served area with something he knows works in other places and even in that area, but he's going to open up another one. So yeah, no, no. What's the talent. And he's sure not putting in his time. He hasn't done this before. He didn't own other other hotels. Maybe if there's any talent, I guess it's what you say. He's just noticing a pattern. Fair. Well, I'll tell you, I don't mean to suggest that talent and practice don't matter. Sure. They matter. Sure. Sure. If you're born with a particular strength, that can be very helpful. If you have 10,000 hours to practice, that too is great. But in most cases, I think we have been misled into believing that if we haven't identified a particular talent, or if we're so far into our career that we don't have 10,000 hours to invest in a particular area, then we should give up, that we should just find the best possible job and live for the weekend. And I think for a lot of people, it's kind of a depressing story. They've given up on themselves because they don't know another way. And what I hope that people take away from this book and what the tools that this book provides is Enabling, enabling you to take the best works in your field, identify why they work, and accelerate your success by applying some of those formulas in a new way. And I have so many different examples in the book about people who've done this. And probably my favorite example is the story of Barack Obama. I don't know if this is something you got into when you read the book, but the story of Barack Obama is, is such that people assume that he was born with a particular talent, which is speaking. Right, and if you, regardless of where you sit on the on the political, uh, uh, the range of political views, I think most people would acknowledge that he is above average when it comes to speaking. What most people don't realize is that he was not a great speaker right out of the gate. In fact, his first race in politics was he was working to get elected for uh, in, to Congress in uh, Illinois. And he gets trounced. He loses by a margin of more than two to one. And it's because he's a terrible speaker. And it's, he, his background is he had been a law school professor. And as a law school professor, he was used to lecturing people. Mm. And voters do not appreciate being lectured to. And they let him know at the ballot box. And so he for, he thinks to himself, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got I just lost terribly in this first race. Who's going to give me money again uh, to run again? And he thinks about leaving politics until someone on his staff suggests that he go to the church and I, I'd see what pastors are doing to engage their flocks. And then a couple of years later, he comes back on the trail. All of a sudden, he's telling stories. He's using repetition. He's modulating his tone. He's using the pregnant pause for effect. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. And what I love about that story is it illustrates that Barack Obama didn't venture off into the wilderness to find his talent. He didn't practice for 10,000 hours. He figured out what was working in a different field and incorporated it into his approach. And that's a tool that we can all use, whether you're developing a website 
don't just look at the at the at the other websites of the people who are your competitors. Look to see what they're doing in different industries. Figure out what's unique about those experiences and think about ways of combining influences. Combining influence turns out to be a far better path to creativity than aiming to be completely original. And it's because being completely original, as the research sh shows us, actually backfires. People don't like original ideas. It scares them. Uh, as a species, we are. Um, we are distrustful of the new, and that extends to the way that we uh, experience new novel things. And so if you are someone who's aiming for complete novelty, you're probably going to fail. Number one, because it's really hard to be completely novel. And number two, even if you are completely novel, your ideas will likely get rejected. You are listening to The Ziegler Show and my discussion on decoding greatness with psychologist Ron Friedman. We'll be right back. Well, and I appreciate that because I hope that everybody out there, especially those who are thinking of starting a business and hear that because you say in essence, or, or maybe even to paraphrase you that the novice entrepreneurs often looking at novelty. What are we going to do yeah. that's going to come out and be brilliant? And yet the most successful new startups we see are the seasoned entrepreneurs that know that they don't need something novel. They just need to improve on that. And I want to come to that in just a second. It's interesting what you said about Barack, because you know, this is the Ziegler show. I mean, Zig Ziegler, what's he know? He's one of the most famous sales trainers and speakers ever, period. And he stunk at both. He was not natural at either of those. He was terrible salesperson uh, to begin with. That's a big part of his story. And yet he was such a student. And it got me to thinking about that idea of us striving to be the best to be the genius, to be the most talented. And your book got me to thinking more. So no, I, I just need to, I almost need to step back and quit trying so stinking hard and just be insightful. And, and Ron, it took me back again to cycling. I'll never forget the day I'd been in cycling for a long time. I was at the elite level. I may have had a pro license by that time. And, uh, you know, and I'm, so I'm doing okay, but I'll, you know, what's the thought with being a cyclist? It's you got to be the strongest guy out there, which is is not the case. You really need to be the smartest one overall. Tour de France, you know, strength is going to come out, but your average cycling is like a chess game. And I'll never forget being behind a guy. His name was Jonas Carney. He was on the biggest domestic pro team that we had. And I'll never forget it dawning on me. Here we are, we're riding, we're in this race. And it hit me that this dude is putting out less energy than anyone else. He is like the master conservationalist. That's not what you think of, of being great. It's like, you think, you know, you, you got to kick butt and be the strongest workhorse out there. And what I learned that day helped me win and do better in more races than ever. So did I get stronger? No, I actually, I, I put out less effort and learned how to be smart and I won more races. And we just don't think about that in business to yeah. step back. And, well, to, to, I, I, that's what I got out, being more insightful, being, working smarter. We're back kind of back to that to some degree. Yeah, and I, I think that this is one of the reasons why people don't talk about reverse engineering. So we've talked about okay. how many people have succeeded through it. A lot of people don't talk about it because they're a little bit ashamed. They feel like maybe if I talk about the idea that this is how I got my ideas, then people will think I'm not an original, I'm a hack, I'm copying someone else. Right. But the truth is that unless you're studying the luminaries in your field, like that guy who you learn from, or your contemporaries, you are working with intellectual blinders. And you know, with this argument that your only way to get better is to practice, 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 there's a glaring problem with that assumption. And that is you cannot practice an idea you've never considered. 
If all you'd been doing is practicing harder and harder as a cyclist, you never would have stumbled on this idea of getting smarter around conserving your energy. And so what I argue in this book is if you have the right tools for identifying good ideas and then working backward to uncover how they were manifested, you now are arming yourself with a whole set of tools for improving your performance in the future. I'll just say one other thing about this, which is the, I, you know, you asked me about the impetus for the, for the, for the book and for yeah. the idea. And there was, you know, for a long time, I'd been considering reverse engineering. And I knew from talking to other entrepreneurs that this is in fact how people learn. This is actually how I learned to write academic journal articles as I reverse engineered other academic journal articles to know how to do that. I, I wasn't taught this at graduate school. In fact, I would have failed out of grad school had I not figured out how to reverse engineer uh, academic journal articles. I also did the same thing for writing book proposals where I was able to find some examples and then I worked backward to figure out what was happening in every page and then created a template that I can then use to create my book proposal. But the point I wanted to get to, which is that people assume that if you all you're doing is looking closely at someone else's work, then you will be unoriginal, uncreative, and kind of right. just a hack, a copycat. That's false. And the study that got me to realize this was a study that was conducted at the University of Tokyo, where they had creativity experts, and they brought in to the lab two groups of amateur artists. They divided them into two groups. The first group was asked to create uh, original paintings for three days straight. The second group was asked to create original paintings on the first day. On the second day, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on the final day, they were asked to resume creating original paintings. And what the researchers were interested in is which of the two groups was most creative on the final day of the experiment, the group that had just practiced doing original paintings the entire time, or the group that had paused to copy someone else's work. And what they found was it wasn't even close. The group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist was significantly more creative. And it wasn't by copying the style of that artist. It was by going off in completely different directions. And so the question is why? Why does copying make us more creative? And it's because when we take the time to study someone else's work really really closely and try to recreate it from scratch, that process of try, of, of comparing our instinctive inclinations, the thing we want to do against the decisions of the master, what that person actually did, that comparison opens our eyes up to new opportunities that are hidden within our work. And so far from making you unoriginal and uncreative, yeah. taking the time to reverse engineer the work of a master will actually improve and elevate your success. Okay. I love it. That quote that you can't practice harder at something you have not even considered. We, you know, uh, again, my, my business partner, Randy talks about that. The most dangerous thing is we don't know what we don't know. And so I'm in the authoring world like you are as well. And my gosh, yeah. The, what's the best fodder for my, my own brilliance, my own genius is reading other stuff is reading that, you know, yeah. I got a book behind bookcase behind me, just like you do. And it's not in taking their ideas, but it's taking my unique perspective and idea and going, Holy smokes. I hadn't considered it in the vein of their filter and their perspective and theirs as well. And then of course the best books that we read out there on, you know, the personal development, business development, everybody's sourcing so many people that added up to that. And I love it when somebody, because I do it as well, go, man, here, here's something that's brilliant. I don't think I said, it. I don't remember who said, it. I'm pretty sure it wasn't me, but man, you got to hear <laughs> this. And, you know, it's interesting because you've talked about Malcolm Gladwell a couple of times 
his book Outlier and the 10,000 Hours. And as you said, you're not discounting that. But it's interesting that he uses, he cites as you do, Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, hey, here's Bill. And he had exposure that most people didn't have. And he got to put in his 10,000 hours. Okay. That notwithstanding, the story you, I think it's in your intro even that you start off with. And you say that ultimately what Bill Gates is famous for is something that he didn't invent. He, well, I mean, there's going to be some people that say, yeah, he and he and uh, Steve Jobs both kind of you know stole it from Xerox or whatever, but they borrowed heavily from this. And yeah, what is the chicken or the egg somewhat? Yeah, he had exposure, but what he ultimately came out with, the brilliant thing was something that he reverse engineered. I mean, it's pretty yeah. irrefutable. Yeah. So, so to start the book off, I tell this story that, you know, if you're someone who has uh, studied Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, he may be familiar with it, but most people just have not heard the story. And it was new to me and I was doing the research for the book. And it has to do with the development of Windows and the Macintosh. And most people assume, I mean, just to, just to take a step back, back in the 1980s, computers looked nothing like the sleek, intuitive devices that we all use today. If you wanted a computer to do anything, you would have to input a rigid set of instructions using syntax that uh, would convey your instructions to the computer. Today, of course, we don't have to do that. We can just lift our mouse and point and click. It's really easy to use, very intuitive. And the innovation that led from text-based input language to the mouse and pointing and clicking, that was called a graphic user interface or GUI for short. The GUI was introduced by Xerox and it was in, it was a feature of their uh, 1970s computer, the Xerox Alto. Most people had never heard of the Alto and it's because Xerox didn't think that computers would become a household item. They thought it was going to be a fancy device for in big corporations for secretaries. That was their conception of the computer. They did not see the big picture. Steve Jobs and Bill Gates both had previews of the Alto. They got to see behind the scenes. They knew what was happening. And they realized that Xerox was sitting on a gold mine and wasn't utilizing their best idea. And so both of them didn't copy the code. They didn't take the computer and uh, duplicate its parts. They saw what it did. And then they worked backward to figure out how it might have been built. And so both of them created their central device, the Macintosh in the case of Steve Jobs and uh, Windows in the case of Bill Gates by reverse engineering the Alto. And so the book opens with this scene of Steve Jobs confronting Bill Gates for having stolen his idea. And Bill Gates essentially says, no, I didn't steal your idea. We both worked off of this central model and, and he doesn't say this, but this is the way that I interpret this, is that they both took an idea that was underutilized and made it better. Steve Jobs took the idea of a GUI and he made computers artistic and intuitive. Whereas in the case of um, Bill Gates, his focus and Macintosh's focus was making computers affordable. And so both of them took an idea that was being underutilized and made it better. And that's the opportunity for reverse engineering. We have this idea, as you suggested, that you know Bill Gates was born gifted and perhaps Steve Jobs was too. And while that may be true, they also um, developed their careers on a foundation of reverse engineering, which is why that tool is so critical for all of us. Even if you don't work in computers, unless you're reverse engineering, the best works, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to learn from the best of the best. 
Well, and it's so interesting too. I, I have a uh, I have a business right now, an idea that I am just pretty on fire about. I have no talent within that arena at all. I mean, it's just no discernible talent. I have definitely not put my time in. I simply see an opportunity to take something that already exists. And I don't even know if it's fair to say to make it better. I'm just going to make it different for a different segment of the population that's not being served well, or that's being unaddressed. And, you know, as a call out to my buddy, Christopher Lockhead, he's so, so often we look at stuff and we don't even have to make it better, just make it different. I mean, you look at computers and what's, you know, how awesome is it that, uh, well, I guess I do have my iPhone where I can, you know, take my finger and just, and do that. But none of my, I'm looking at all the screens here. None of them are touch screens. I'm mm-hmm. maybe I'm just old school, man. I, I'm just, I'm just fine. I don't, I didn't need that better or that different. Um, but that's something that serves some people. My kids don't know how to function a computer without putting their finger on it and, right. and dialing that. How many, there's unlimited variations. I guess that's the opportunity when you come back to your aspect of, you don't need some novel new invention, but just look at something. How can you make it different? Or back to your analogy of Chipotle to a degree, wasn't even very different. It was just taking what already works to a place that it hasn't been presented yet. And yeah, and that's, that's an unlimited potential. Yeah. And I think that that is freeing. I want people to yes. listen to this yeah, and know absolutely. that this is liberating. This doesn't suggest that you could just copy everyone else's work and you'll be okay. That's not what we're saying. Right. What we're saying is if you can combine ideas in a new way, that is a lot easier than trying to come up with something that's never been invented before. Right. But it's at the same time, it's critical to, to, to modify it slightly. So I give the, uh, in the book the example of the work Twilight, the book from Stephanie yeah. Meyer, very famous, uh, was a tremendous success right out of the gate. If you haven't read it, it's the story of a teenager who falls in love with a vampire. When that book came out, uh, I think it was the early 2000s, there were tons of copycats, all of these books about vampires and love with humans, and none of them achieved even a fraction of success of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight. But you know what did succeed a few years later was Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. So it's taking the idea of connecting humans with vampires and twisting it a little bit by adding American history. And so that's an example of taking a trend that's working and going and evolving it to the next step. If you can take a trend, get ahead of a trend that is already working, add something that makes it a little bit unique, you're going to be ahead of the curve. Okay. I want to play. I do want to play with this a little bit though, Ron, um, because we're looking at like pattern recognition when we get into that. And saying, okay, let's take that. And you, you start somewhere in the book, you talk about that, the, the aspects that make up a good story in mm-hmm. essence, which I really like that. Donald Miller, I've been a fan of him for a long time. And he, uh, in his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, talked about, you know, great story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. And you can spread And you did that. You spread that in different ways that it can happen, chicken to the egg, you know, whatever. But that that is the essence of a good story. And yet... Yeah, I read the part that you talked about there with Twilight, that there is to come in and see something that works and then just expect that, oh my gosh, if we just exactly model that, that Mm -hmm. the, uh, you say the reader, but in this sense, let's say the customer, their expectations do shift and evolve. So there is a limit, or I guess that's what you're saying, or is that what you're saying? There is a limit to, we can't just come along and model something. There's got to be a a nuance. Yeah. So let me, let me clarify. So the reason that those twilight copycats didn't work is because of two things. 
One is if you find somebody else's formula and you just try to reproduce it, chances are your in, innate strengths will be a little different than that other person. So for example, if I find a great TED Talk and I just figure out what's happening in this TED Talk and try to recreate that same formula for my topic, chances are I will not be as successful as that original person because maybe they're funny. Maybe they have a certain gravitas that I lack. So I can't create a one-to-one match. I'm not going to be 100% in reproducing it. That's one reason why that formula may not be applicable to me. The second reason is that audience expectations shift with time. And so if you've already read Twilight or if you've already read Harry Potter, the next Harry Potter, the next Twilight is not going to be as interesting to you because you're already familiar with the premise. And now the expectations that you have around how that story will end are already set. So now I need to play on those expectations. This is a big problem with uh, M. Night Shyamalan that he exposed experienced throughout his career. He had this amazing blockbuster right out of the gate, The Sixth Sense. And everybody knew that when you watch an M. Night Shyamalan movie, there's going to be a twist ending. So now everybody expected a twist ending and he's had real difficulty breaking out of that expectation because people know that it's coming and it's no longer as shocking. It's much harder for him to do it. Same thing when you're trying to reproduce somebody else's formula. Once people know the formula, they're going to expect it. It's not going to work. So the key is to find a way to change it up just enough. Now, let me just come back to something you said earlier, which is the patterns that make successful stories resonate. And this is a, a practice that Uh, Kurt Vonnegut actually used to identify what it is that makes stories successful. So what he would do is he would read a story and then he would turn the words into a picture. And here's how he did it. He would have a graph and he would map out the protagonist's fortune over time. So in other words, how are things going for the main character? Things going well? Things going poorly? And he would graph it out from left to right, from beginning to end over time. Are things going well for the character or are things going poorly for the character? And what he discovered when he did this to the most famous stories of all time is that, A, there are basically six stories that we've heard over and over again with different characters. They're all the same six basic patterns. And two is often we encounter the same story with different characters in different settings and we don't realize we're hearing the same story again and again and so a great example of this and i discussed this in the book is comparing the story of annie versus the story of cinderella they're basically the same story at the beginning of annie she's an orphan out on the street being abused by mrs hannigan things are not going well cinderella she's being abused by her stepsisters she's cleaning the house things are not going well then something Good happens to both of them. Cinderella gets uh, summoned to the ball and meets her fairy godmother. Annie gets rescued by Daddy Warbucks. Then something bad happens. Cinderella clock strikes midnight. Annie, she gets kidnapped by people pretending to be her parents. And then finally, a a, um, resolution at the end where they both live happily ever after. Cinderella is reunited with Prince Charming. I think it's Prince Charming. I don't know. It's it's a good prince. And then uh, in the case of Annie, she goes back to living with Daddy Warbucks forever. They're basically the same stories, different characters, different settings. And that's what I mean by taking a, a winning pattern and applying it in a new way. It's just you shift the pattern a little bit by shifting the setting. And all of a sudden you have a brand new story. You are listening to The Ziegler Show and my discussion on decoding greatness with psychologist Ron Friedman. We'll be right back. Okay, I'm sitting here taking notes because it's so interesting as I think about it. Um, 
I, you know, I've done so many businesses, Ron. I've done a little bit of everything wrong at some point. And what you talked about is actually, I, I, I pulled this out, page 53 in your book. And you said, you need more than the right formula. You need the right formula for the right person within the right context. Uh, I, it was glaring to me. I'll never forget finding Gary Vaynerchuk doing Wine Library. And I was blown away by his engagement. Here we are at the time I was blogging and maybe doing some fledgling podcasting. And I see what he's doing with these videos and his engagement is just unprecedented. And so what did I do? I went to model Gary V. I got a backdrop. I got a camera. I spent the money. I set it all up and I start doing it real quickly to realize this does not fit me. I am not that entertaining for one. I just, I'm not as entertaining as him. I don't have a product like wine and a helmet to spit in and guests coming on. I'm just a talking head. It works great for podcasting, but nobody wants to watch it. Wants to watch a video of me just sitting there monologuing. I totally missed it. I did not have your formula, unfortunately, in front of me to figure out that it wasn't a good fit for me, even though it was for him. And you know what you just went through with the Cinderella. And uh, Annie's story, I was going to ask that about some of the patterns, because there are some, you're saying there's, we, we call those the best uh, tried and true, best, best business practices of a story. So over here, we have best business practices. I mean, we have some things that you don't want to deviate from. I tend to think of like online purchasing. I mean, if you're selling something online, I mean, Amazon is the king of, of online purchasing. If you're going to have a you know, point and purchase platform on your website, you would do best. I would tell everybody, just model in essence what they're doing. Use a platform that's going to mirror theirs because people are used to it. If I come to your site to buy something and it's really different, now, again, we're not talking about products. Products, you know, you may have a different cool product or service, but the way that I buy it, that tenant of best business practices, it better line up. Don't deviate. Because again, I've done that, Ron. I've gone, man, everybody's going that way. We're going to go this way and do something totally different. Nobody wanted different in that best business practice. So again, I want, I want you to reiterate that again. So we, we're going to be different with our unique better, however it is with our product or service, our offering, but it still needs to fit in what people expect and have proven that they respond well to just like your storyline. Yeah. So ultimately what this comes down to is first, you need to understand what it is that is working. And there are all kinds of tools that I discussed in the book that show you how to break down why something is successful, but then you need to evolve it a little bit so that it's unique in some way. That's the yeah. only way to stand out. If you just reproduce somebody else's work, you're going to get ignored. You have to be different. You have to find your differentiator. Now, that differentiator can come from a lot of different places. And in chapter three, I talk about the formula for evolving formulas. And probably the easiest way to do this is to combine influences. You can combine influences from within your field. You can combine influences from different fields. But that's an important key is find a way to be a little bit different by combining influences. So I give the example of the music of the doors, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I hope your listeners are familiar with, and we're getting to the point where not as many people as I'd like, are still familiar with the doors. I'm but fully you, familiar with the doors. Yes. <laughs> so if you've ever heard light my fire and yep. the, the opening of that song seems remarkably unique, there's nothing else like it until you realize how they wrote that song, that they did that opening to light my fire didn't exist 
at the beginning when they first started working on it they came up with the chords for the song the band actually did not like it they thought it sounded very sunny and share which is very mainstream and lame so the band starts messing around with it they start layering on bossa nova in terms of the beat and the and the uh bass line then they uh add to that uh the um the critical all-important layer of johann sebastian bach in the opening and all of a sudden they've got these that combination of bossa nova johann sebastian bach plus rock and roll and now you've got light my fire and it wasn't by aiming to be completely novel it was by combining influences another modern day example of this is um lin-manuel miranda if you've ever seen uh hamilton uh, most people have, are familiar with it on some level the show before that was in the heights i don't know if you've had a chance to see this kevin in the yeah. heights uh, came out on hbo this year uh, for free for one month it was part of the promotion they did because of covid in any event if you ever seen in the heights what you notice is it's very similar to um hamilton and what is happening in in the heights basically what he's done what lin manuel miranda, miranda has done is he's taken the basic broadway formula for a show then he's added on top of that salsa and rap that was his unique contribution now in the in in the heights was a success in its own right, but it was nowhere near the success of Hamilton. Yeah. What happened between In the Heights and Hamilton is he took that same formula, Broadway musical, plus rap, plus salsa, and he added a fourth element. That fourth element was American history. And so again, Lin-Manuel Miranda, yeah. very talented, practiced for 10,000 hours, sure. But you know what else he did? He figured out what was working in different fields and combined them in a new way. So again, if you're going into it, that formula of my job is not to be necessarily a complete original, I'm just going to find things that resonate with me, figure out why they work, reverse engineer them, and then try to combine those elements in a new way. All of a sudden, you have the power to be in a complete original without even trying. And it's, again, by finding elements that work and aiming to combine them in a new way. Well, again, for an entrepreneur, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, I appreciate that you kind of deviated out of my initial entryway when I was talking about athletics, because there's some aspect to that to where, and you're not going to get away. There's no Olympian that didn't put in their 10,000 hours and doesn't have some level of talent, but my gosh, business-wise, yeah, I have faltered plenty of times and on the sword of just trying to rely on my talent or my effort and even my perseverance, you know, my don't, you know, never, never, ever, 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 ever quit. And yet my best successes have come on the insight of just seeing something and figuring out how that worked. And I do want you to, so yeah, again, I, to what you said, I want everybody to hear, this is an incredibly freeing, opportunistic message. It takes a lot of the pressure off of you thinking it's going to take you 10,000 years to do this. And you're going to have to be the most talented person on the planet, which is why you need to get the book, get the book and study the book. Um, but when you look at this, talk about to algorithmic thinking, uh, that page right there, when you flip, I don't have the page in front of you, flip it over and you had some things in bold that were just brilliant. And then when you got into talking about Tinder and what they did, I guess you could say dating sites in general, but you've actually got me thinking about how Tinder has done what they have done and monitor people and look at people's propensities and just feed back to them what they told him to do it's almost just like well heck it's like a mirror isn't it yeah so you know what the the, the story of tinder is really interesting and it's the what the story that leads off chapter two it's called algorithmic thinking the yeah. reason it's called algorithmic thinking is because one of the best ways of identifying patterns 
and which is obviously critical to reverse engineering. We want to know what makes something successful. You want to understand the underlying pattern is uh, feeding the pat feeding examples into a computer and having an algorithm spit right. out predictions. And so what I was curious in chapter two of this book is how are algorithms so good at finding patterns and what can we learn from them to improve our own skill at pattern recognition? And what you look at, and when you look at the story of an example like Tinder, what you find is that computers, uh, computer algorithms are able to generate predictions by doing a, 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 by following through on a number of steps that are repeatable uh, no matter what computer program it is. So uh, let me just t talk to specifically to Tinder. How Tinder predicts who you're going to find attractive is really simple. It starts off by giving you a number of images of people who you may or may not find attractive and asks you to swipe right if you like them, swipe left if you don't. The more people you rate, the better Tinder gets is at figuring out what the people who you liked have in common. And what does that by finding commonalities that you yourself may not be aware of. So you might think you're rating people on their looks, but what Tinder might find is that in fact, the reason you're liking a certain set of people is because they are all tall or they're all blonde, or maybe they're all extroverted. Maybe it has nothing to do with their image, but it has to do with their backgrounds or something they mentioned in their profile. And how Tinder does that is, again, by feeding you examples and then breaking down by grouping the ones that you like against the ones you didn't like, and then finding out what is it the ones that you like have in common. And now it's able to better predict who you're going to find attractive. And so its predictions get better with time, the more people that you rate. The same is true for all of us. If we want to get good at figuring out what are the patterns that are hidden within the works that we find evocative, we need to group them together. And so I, one of the recommendations, the actionable recommendations that I, you, you'll take away after reading this book is the first step to becoming better at pattern recognition is to become a collector. Now, when we think about collections, we tend to think about physical objects. We think about shoes or stamps or wines, but that definition of a collection as a physical object is too limiting. In fact, I can tell you the best copywriters, they collect headlines. The best presenters collect presentation decks. The best designers collect logos. And they create for themselves something of a private museum that they can visit to both inspire themselves, but also notice commonalities about what is it that makes the works that I find unique effective. And so by starting a collection, and this could be as easy as just bookmarking certain pages that are resonant for you. If you're a marketer, you can collect landing pages, you can collect brochures, have that kind of hall of fame that you can go and visit the next time you want to create something new, because now you're going to be inspired, you're going to have a model that you can templatize to work off of yourself. And you can really the, the ultimate benefit is that when you have that collection, you can't help but compare the extraordinary, the items in your collection yeah. against those that didn't make it, the ordinary. So comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary, it's almost like playing a game of spot the difference that we all used to play as kids where you have two images side by side. Your job is to figure out what's different about the image on the right as compared to the image on the left. You want to do that with your collection because now you're going to help unlock some of those key factors that make resonant works unique. Yeah, you, you know, even in talking about 
algorithmic thinking and, and tender. I mean, you're talking about if anybody's seen social dilemma and social media, that's what's happening. That's what's happening in the as soon as you log onto your computer or your phone, you are being monitored. Your data is being collected. They're figuring out, they know you better than you know yourself as far as, yeah, what you just said, what you pause at, what catches your attention, even if it's out of anger or whatever, they're just looking at it and say, what it's incites at a response from you, because if they can get your attention, they make money. And mm -hmm. yet, are we being that observant in our business? I mean, overall, Ryan, yeah, your book, again, back to that aspect of free. And I think that's how I'm going to be promoting these shows is saying, hey, if you don't want to try, risk relying on your talent, which I'm going to say in business is just not, you can't get that far just with talent. Um, and if you don't want to look at your 10,000 hours and God knows how many years that's going to equate to in your business. Ron's got a different approach over here. And, and I really feel like it is being a, you're calling us back to say, just be a student of what you're doing and look for the opportunity to stand out, how you can be different, but how to take something that's already working. Cause for the average business person, again, leaving novelty, I feel like you're calling us back to say, no, just, just use what already works. It's already there. You can take it. You don't need to invent a new wheel or anything. Just take something, have a, a product or service that has a, a differentiating factor, a unique selling proposition. That's nothing new. Uh, and then come over here and use what is working. Though I do want to say back, I, again, I, I'm going to reiterate this. I'll probably put this in the show notes. Take something that's working, but that it's the right formula that you need for you as that person. Does it fit you as a person? And does it fit you say the right context and you can say the context of your marketplace. You can even say the context of your life. Because if I looked at the arenas that you and I are in of authoring and doing podcasts and whatnot, and you could say, Hey, you should do public speaking. And I might go, okay. But the context for me is I got a lot of kids. I don't travel a whole lot. I'll do that, but it's not going to be, I'm not going to be a road warrior. So again, you're monitoring this and saying, what is the model? That fits you. Hey, that's why I'm excited about it, Ron, uh, about what you've done here. It's Yeah, I appreciate that. It's incredibly freeing. I think it's going to open up the doors. And I think the ideas for a lot of folks. So uh, I got to get another book. Mine's, mine's talk about Road Warrior, man. I beat that. <laughs> this is a galley copy. I think I beat to death. Uh, thank you, man. Thanks for putting this thing out there, bringing this to light. I'm eager to get people involved. Uh, with you and just appreciate the fact that I got the book because yeah, you've got me thinking on a business idea right now. So uh, this show, it's a million dollar show, Ron. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, friends, this should have you feeling excited about some ideas and opportunities and not having to wish you had more talent or think you have to be stuck looking at how many years ahead of you do you need to put in your 10,000 hours. Again, you can get Ron Friedman's book, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success, wherever you get your books. And if you'll go to decodinggreatnessbook.com and submit your receipt, Ron will give you access to his course, The Reverse engineering success masterclass. Hey, I invite you to join like-minded people in my driven to live private community to discuss how to decode your own greatness. Come find us at kevinmiller.co and you can go from listening to participating. 
Coming up next in episodes 956 of The Ziggler Show, Tom Ziggler will join me and we'll give you some resources for truly making this new year one of great personal progress. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <laughs>